This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. I just want to uh, start with a story. Um, let me see if I can get my slides going here. I want to talk today a little bit about the problem of identity. Uh, if I were to ask Christian college students like those of Biola, where do you find your identity or where ought you to find your identity, they'd be very readily say. They would say, well, in Christ. And I agree. And so then I ask them, well, how does that work? How do we find our identity in Christ? Because the answer is obvious, the what. The how is a little more mysterious. But I want to start with a story. Uh, many of you have maybe uh, seen the um, London Tube Station, either in pictures or in person. Uh, and if you've been to the London Underground Transportation System, then this sign will be very uh, familiar to you. It says, Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap. And the reason why they say mind the gap is because the tube system was built over decades in London, and various platforms differ in each station in their relationship to the carriage that goes by. Sometimes the gap between the platform and the carriage is larger, sometimes it's smaller. What you don't want to do is step down into it by accident, so there's this constant reminder to mine the gap. And there's also a recording if you've been down there, in which a voice keeps saying, mind the gap, please, mind the gap, please. Um, well, if you were down in the embankment tube station at certain times of the day in 2007, you would have seen Margaret McCollum sitting in the station near the tracks, but never getting on the train. Day after day, at certain points, Margaret would come down into the embankment tube station and just sit there. You know, in... In these tube stations, the people they would often use for the recordings, mind the gap please, mind the gap please, would be actors, obviously voice trained, and they would contract with them to make a number of recordings in a number of stations. Well, in 2007, Margaret's husband died, and Margaret's husband, Lawrence Os Oswald Lawrence, was the voice of the embankment tube station. So after he died, Margaret would go down and just sit in the embankment tube station from time to time just to hear his voice. In 2013, she came down one time and suddenly there was a different voice on the embankment tube station warning. And so she went over to the London Transportation Office and she asked if she could have a CD of the recording uh, previously for the embankment tube station. And since it was such an odd request, of course, they asked her why. And she says, well, my late husband was the voice for the embankment tube station, so I just would like the CD. They were so moved by her story that they reinstalled uh, Oswald Lawrence's voice to the embankment tube station. And if you go there today, he's one of the voices you can hear still down the embankment tube station. And I want to talk about, I've been, uh, I've been uh, advancing my own slides, but I haven't uh, shown, you, shown you these. There's Margaret. There's Oswald. Yesterday I was talking about, in fact, that you and I don't have to be told to mind the gap. We automatically mind the gap. 
we are very aware of the gap between who we perceive we are and who we feel like we should be. On the one hand, we have many cultural expectations or expectations from our families or our friends about who we need to be. Things like we need to be more attractive, uh, more accomplished, more popular, more experienced, more powerful, funny, funnier. I bet if I asked you, who do you feel today like you need to be, you would probably be able readily to come up because you're very aware of expectations. Whether they're right or they're wrong, we all feel a certain pressure to be more than we are. And as I said yesterday, it's because we have imaginations. We can imagine better versions of ourselves, and we get a lot of help from the media. And so we live in this gap between who we feel like we should be and who we feel like we are. And not only that, but for Christians, we have kind of a double bind because there's lots of expectations and commands in scriptures. And we know for sure that these are good. The cultural ones, we're not so sure. Again, nowhere in scripture does it say, thou shalt be humorous, right? But these we know. We need to be more loving, more kind, more generous, more self-denying, more peaceful, more joyful, more grateful, more evangelistic, more just. These we know we need to be. Obedience is non-negotiable. But the effect of both of these together sometimes on us is a sense of shame and guilt. Shame for who we're not, guilty for what we haven't done or who we haven't become. And this tends to be the burden of the Christian. The burden of the Christian is that they can imagine better versions of themselves. And it's hard to live up to them. And what I suggested yesterday that we need to do is rather than just first try to fix the self or engage in a number of defenses to keep the painful self-knowledge from coming to us, the only thing that was designed to handle shame and guilt was not us. That's called doing it in the flesh. What is, what, did, what is doing things in our own strength? It's your own effort to chase away shame and guilt. If you're ever confused by that phrase, what is it do things in my own strength? It is that. It is to use something I can do to try to chase away shame and guilt because you never will. We will always fall short, either of expectations that are dubious or of expectations that are biblical. What I said yesterday we need to do is we need to go to the cross. That the way we came to Christ is how we grow in Christ. We came to Christ saying, Lord, I bring nothing. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. I need your help. I need the atonement. And that's not just a conversion doctrine. But it's a doctrine for every day of your life. When we fail, when we fall short, whatever we may need to do next, we need to first say, I want to move from a place of acceptance, not for acceptance. And so we go, we, we fly to the cross with our shame and guilt. Because shame and guilt was never something that we were intended to banish. The cross banished it. And so I want to talk about, a little bit about identity. Because, you know, a lot of us, we're kind of like loose electricity, right? We grew up, and, it, and even what it means to be human is to be insecure. And is to be looking for some place to ground ourselves. Where can I ground myself? And just like electricity is seeking to be grounded, so sometimes it feels like in our lives, we want to become these things that we can imagine so we can say, this is who I am. I'm the athletic person. I'm the insightful person. I'm the academic person. I'm the funny person. I'm the attractive person. There's something in our natures that is kind of free-floating, a kind of free-floating anxiety that says, who am I? And so like loose electricity, we're seeking to become something or someone. Um, the question is, where did this all start? How did we become like this? 
And I think if we go all the way back to Genesis, it becomes rather clear how this all got started. In Genesis 3, the serpent tells a brilliant lie. So he says to the woman in verse 1, Did God actually tell you you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And here's the brilliant bit. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Boy, there's a brilliant lie nestled into that phrase, you will be like God. See, up to that point, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with God. They believed God was their lover. They believed God was their friend. They believed God was their advocate. Here the serpent says, you know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because he will, you will become like him, and he doesn't want anybody to be like him. In other words, God is not your lover, he's your rival. He's secretly your rival, and he doesn't want anybody to become like them. And now what is kind of put in, in Eve's soul, as well as Adam, he's standing right there but saying nothing, you know, like guys do. Um, you know, what put in her soul now is suddenly self-doubt, or not self-doubt, God-doubt. Is God not for me? Do I have to become like God? And from that moment on, the human tendency was, I need to become like God because I'm the only person I can count on. I now have to secure myself in the world because God will not secure me in the world. He is not my friend. And so they chose the way of autonomy. They chose the way of independence. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. They were vulnerable. So they sewed fig leaves together, and the first thing they do is cover and the second thing they do is hide. They cover from shame and they hide for fear of punishment from guilt. And I bet we could almost trace the whole of human history as fanning out from those two movements, those two post-fall movements. Constantly trying to cover so we won't really be seen for fear that we'll be rejected. Or hide for fear that we'll, there'll be consequences to who we are and our failures. And so as humans, we become those who are always covering and hiding and we are looking for coverings. We are looking for coverings as we seek to hide in our vulnerability. And I think identity can even work this way as well. And here I think of Isaiah 44 and the description of idolatry because at some point our inordinate desire for identity, it's normal by the way, but an inordinate desire for identity can become a form of idolatry. And I want you to listen to the description of the carpenter. In Isaiah 44, we're told he cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress or an oak and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of that wood and warms himself. He kindles a fire and, breaks bre and, and bakes bread. Well, so far, so good. He's taking his skill, we might say his identity as a carpenter, and he's doing good with it. He's cutting down trees, he's building a fire to warm himself and for the sake of others too. He bakes bread with it. So far, so good with his identity, his vocation. But then what are we told? And then he makes a God and worship it, worships it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to the God and says, save me, you are my God. Well, that's so ridiculous, isn't it? 
to take something he has made, to take an identity he's good, and not only to use it for the good, but now to set up that identity, that skill, that talent, that achievement, and to bow down before it and say, save me. Can you secure me in the world, not just in terms of survival, but can you be my God? Something to attach to. You know, I think we all do it, right? Junior high, high school, that's a jungle, right? You've got to become someone in junior high and high school. You've got to have an identity just to survive. You've got to belong to a group just to survive. And probably most of us realize that early on. And early on in our lives, we probably attach to a particular thing we did well. And we realize, this saves me. <laughs> this saves me socially. If we, were, if we had a good sense of humor that is normally meant to bring delight and fun to people, we may have figured, I get applause for this. People like me when I'm funny. And so we really attached to that because that was the secure place. That was the safe place. And we became so attached to it that we kind of, unbeknownst to ourselves, we begin to kind of bow down to it and say, this will save me. <laughs> this will help me make my way in the world with people. I need something to ground me because it's up to me to make my way. So this will save me. For others, it was, it was athletics. Right? The athlete in the English class is like, I, I don't want to be in English class. I've got to be on the court because that's what will save me. <laughs> that's where people like me. They like me on the court. Now, the downside to this and to many other identities is if it's going to save you, you have to stay good at it. If the athlete misses those free throws, now we're in trouble. Because the thing that he thought would save him and help him make his way in the world is now, uh, is now possibly disintegrating. And so he's got to get back to the free throw line quick and make some free throws. Or the person who's funny always has to tell the joke. And it always has to be funny. Because that is a thing that will save them. For me, I'm embarrassed to tell you, um, it was a couple things that I thought would save me. I was a basketball player. I know, hard to believe, because of my um, vertical challenge here, 5A. Uh, but I do want you to appreciate the fact how high I'm jumping there. I'm the one in the white, okay, trying to block the shot there, right? Can I get some uh, snaps for this? Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I mean, the court is below that other guy's feet. I just want you to get the right proportions of this before we move on. So yeah, basketball was a big deal to me. And, and again, I, I attached to it. And man, if I didn't do well in a game, I was crushed. Because my identity was just all in there, man. That's what was going to save me. And then later on, I attached to kind of academics. And this is the embarrassing bit. I thought maybe I could become like C.S. Lewis, okay? Laughter, thank you very much. Yeah, talk about picking, picking something unrealistic. So academics then became something to save me. Now, I was naturally athletic, and I, and I had a, 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 a fair to middling intellect. But these are the things that I attached to. Think about what you attached to. What, what helped you make your way? And, you know, there's no condemnation because when we're growing up, we've got to find something. <laughs> we've got to find something. So there's no, no condemnation here. We all found something, musical ability, um, even, even a characteristic, the good kid. Some of you were the good kid, which meant you always had to be kind, and you always had to be uh, a people pleaser. And so this is how it goes. Now, you and I were meant um, to have lots of identities, right? We might be a leader. That's part of us, and that's great. We might be funny. That's a gift. We might have a certain expertise in music or athletics or academics. That's fantastic. We have uh, relational identities. We, we're a son or daughter. 
and other talents. We were meant to have these, if you will, multiple identities that we would enjoy for our own sake and for the sake of others. But in our desire to secure ourselves in the world, again, feeling like it's all up to us, going back to the garden and sensing, you know, <laughs> it's up to me. I have got to save myself. Like loose electricity, I've got to drown. What we do is we end up taking one of those identity and we try to stuff our whole self into it. We find the one that really works and we stuff our whole self into it. And so maybe it's our athletic identity. It's like, that's the one I'm going to pick. I'm going to stuff my whole self into it. And, 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 and it's all going to depend on how well I do athletically. And on days we do well, we feel great about ourselves. And on days we don't, we're crushed. And even a little scared. Um, I can't read what that one says, but I'm going to go down and look here. Um, it could be an academic identity that we hold on to inordinately as that which will save us. It could be our identity as a leader. And we've got to keep leading. We've got to keep modeling. We've got to, in some ways, be perfect or else we sense we are in jeopardy. It could be our sense of humor. And if, we, if the joke's not funny, we've got to tell another one. And we end up having to be the center of attention all the time because our identity depends on how entertaining we can be. And the list goes on. Um, I can't read what that says. <laughs> attractive. It could be our identity is in what we're attractive. Or as I mentioned, in our goodness. And this is often the, tr the temptation of the Christian. I just need to be a good person. That's how people like me. I'm good. Which sometimes, again, means that we become uh, radical people pleasers and can never confront when we need to or never say no when we need to. Because our identity depends on this notion of our goodness. And even some people, actually, have an identity of badness. And you, you know those kids, right? <laughs> Growing up. They were the kids who were bad kids, but that was their identity. <laughs> and they had to keep being bad in order to secure their identity. Well, for writers uh, in spirituality and psychology, this is called the false self. The false self is not something that's not true of yourself. You may be academic, you may be athletic, you may be funny, you may be talented, you may have natural virtues of kindness, you may love to serve people. But the false self is false because we try to stuff our whole person into it. We try to just be that. In some way, we're reducing ourselves only to that. We become a caricature of that. You know, when political cartoonists uh, do caricatures of, of political figures, and I'm, I'm from the United States, so I'm choosing U.S. presidents here, they always exaggerate one feature of them, right, in, in a, for a political caricature. You see Clinton up there on the left. What feature would you say is being exaggerated there? It's a little hard to see. His nose. Yeah, his nose is exaggerated. How about Carter below him? Teeth, Right? Upper right hand, actually both George Bush and, uh, and Obama, it's the ears. And Trump now, it's the hair, right? They always pick a feature to exaggerate, and we know it's funny because it's a caricature. It's a reduction. But unwittingly, you and I do the same thing. We try to stuff ourselves into one piece. We create a caricature of ourselves, And, you know, a caricature can't be known because it's not really us. It's part us, but it's not our full self. And so then we still have this problem of loose electricity. We're not really known. And if we're not really known, we can't really be loved because we're just presenting a caricature of ourselves, not the full self. So what is the answer? The answer is to reverse that which takes place in the garden. To say, no, 
God didn't forbid us from eating of the tree because he was our rival. It's because he wanted to establish trust. Can you trust me even if you don't know the reason why I'm forbidding you from eating of that tree? He wanted to develop this relationship of trust, and he wanted us to continue to be fully loved and known because the love self is grounded. The love self doesn't have to prove itself. The love self doesn't have to make its way on its own. It can have several identities, but it doesn't have to make an idol of any of those identities out of insecurity. And therefore, I can enjoy my multiple identities. I can receive praise for them in ordinate ways. Others can benefit from them, but in the end, I belong to God. And that's what I want to say identity really is. We do all this over-attachment because we simply want to belong. We simply want to be connected. And God says, you belong. Our identity turns out to be not what we do, but to whom we belong. And that is freedom. So what do we do? Well, in failure, especially in those failures of those identities that we hold closely, we again need to fly to the cross. Fly back to the love of Christ, who loves us as much today as when we came to him. And that is really the only time we can work on our identity. <laughs> it's like it's hard to work on your identity in Christ. The best time to work on it is, is in failure. To fly back and say, do I still belong to you? And let that identity be foremost. The second is to cultivate love and truth friends. People who really know you and who enjoy you. Not just for what you do or how accomplished you are, but they know you and love you. I've had these guys, these have been my friends for 40 years. We meet every Wednesday morning for breakfast. Now, I'm really lucky, and I don't want to set that up as an expectation. But if you can just find a few people that really know you and they just enjoy your, 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 uh, your person, well, that's a great gift. And you want to be that kind of friend for another. And the third thing I'll leave you with this is we want to practice gratitude and confession. To each night, go over your day and say, Lord, thank you for the good things I was able to do. Appreciate your talents. Appreciate your skills. Appreciate the, the gifts you've been given. But then also confess, Lord, did I hold on to any of those too tightly? Did that lead me to any sin? Or did it cause me to need to become the center of attention? Or need me to be, be the best? Well, Lord, I, I surrender that idolatry. So the good news is, again, that we are loved. And it is this that we find our identity. And this is going to be your calling. Your calling will be to let God love you into an identity with him. Heavenly Father, may it be so. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel, from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.